Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy back again with another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. And with me today again is super producer and sidekick Alex. I'm the mustard flavored soda of sidekicks. Um, you are. And if, <laughs> if, if you don't know what we're talking about, you have to go uh, and, and listen to our episode with Amber Weber, where we taste test mustard flavored soda. We won't be doing that today. But I can tell you that even after three days since I opened it, it tastes exactly the same. I'm going to say that's probably bad. Ex well, it was bad to begin with. Didn't we go over this? <laughs> we did. It's a mustard flavored soda. What well, were you expecting? You know lady? what? You know who, who might appreciate. <laughs> well, who? You know what else is bad to begin with? Because we are, um, we're just into the new year here as we're recording, and um, we had a pretty big tragedy here in our area. And we live in Boulder, Colorado. We had a high, an, an extremely high wind day. Uh, right before the new year. And it, I mean, I've lived here 20 something years and I've never seen wind like this. It was a hundred mile an hour wind, steady state all day, plus gusts. Like I thought the house was going to tip over and fall down. Um, and then some idiots down the road in a cult, they call it a religious sect. I'm calling it a cult. And mm -hmm. um, they decided that would be a great day to start a fire. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they proceeded to burn down their house and about a thousand more homes. Wait a minute. You're telling me that that's how the fire started? Mm -hmm. Right down here by El Dorado Springs. Yeah. I have not heard any of this. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a, uh, okay, wait a minute. So let's back up. First mm -hmm. of all, where is this information coming from? Uh, the news. And okay. also I have been down there and I can, you can see the police investigation going on. And they no and they kidding. they have this area. They brought in fencing, and like you can't even go there. So they're still investigating it. I'm so, going to call it as good as solved. However, officially, <laughs> it is unsolved. So wait a minute. Let me let me just back up. Uh, are we talking about the uh, one that that um, looks like a like a condo unit across the street from Marshall Mesa? Uh, no, and it's got a religious sign out front of it. It's like, I don't know. They're, no, they're it's tripping, in that neighborhood tribe. just down from the trailhead where they have all those free newspapers outside. Okay. That I don't know. So it's down in the Marshall neighborhood mm -hmm. because the thinking had been that it was a construction storage shed that was right there across from the, from the, uh, trailhead. And it had, it was basically just stuff they needed to lock up overnight and they were parking all their heavy equipment there for some of the work they were doing and that shed burned up heartily. So some thinking was that that shed had been the origin of it because they probably have flammables in there, if not quite a well, few. Right. Because the cult next door uh, set it on fire and which is um, new information to me. That is fascinating. Well, the fire department had been out there several times to tell them to stop uh, burning their house, burning, down. burning things down. Yeah. So they yeah. decided on a hundred mile an hour wind day to 
uh, continue their pattern and uh, burned up uh, all our uh, bike trails over there. It, but worse yet, a thousand, a thousand homes. A thousand homes. We lost what two, three lives, I think, which is miraculous yeah, for a thousand homes. I can't homes. believe it. I couldn't believe it. And the smoke and the just the wind by itself was just nerve wracking. It was um, crazy to think that they could. They were able to. Ev- I mean, I'm still stuck on the what two or three deaths. Yeah. I, I'm not even sure what we had, but I mean, that's it out of basically two towns burning well this the, is a wildfire the whole towns burned like you go over there and, and they there had is... to evacuate so fast yeah like they had about four minutes to evacuate yeah. how did we only lose three people that's, that's mind-blowing to me yeah. but i remember uh so during that i i caught a piece of this that somebody somewhere was timing uh the fire and how quickly it was spreading they watched it cross a hundred meter span in three seconds probably so Shoo. Yeah. Three I seconds. Mean, it, 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 and to go over there, I drove through it the other night. Um, mm-hmm. it, there's nothing like these houses are burned to the ground. I mean, nothing. Yeah, they're just left. shells. Yeah. Well, and it, it's, it's a little freaky when you drive by and you look over the horizon and you don't see any of the houses that were there. And it, I mean, it's not just that they got burned up. I mean, they have burned up and leveled down to nothing. Well, yeah. And the, and the trees are all just sticks in the ground. There's no grass. It's just gray and soot. And anyway, I've, I've donated quite a bit of money to, mm-hmm. to victims and uh, you know, it's going to be 10 years before this gets built back to any level of reasonableness. Uh, it's just, it's heartbreaking. I, um, I, it, it, one of the things that amazes me is, is what's left and, and how this fire actually spread. Cause uh Costco is is back open now, and these homes are right behind Costco. I don't know how that didn't burn down. Same thing with the Super Target, although they're not open. They they're doing some work. Yeah, they needed their roof, the Super Target, and Mm. and you have an interesting story about your storage shed. Well, my storage shed, which is right behind the Super Target and right behind the Costco in that neighborhood, which used to be heavily populated with probably four hundred. Well, maybe not that, maybe 200 houses uh, and condos is my guess. None of that is there anymore. Um, at the end of that road, there is a what is a vehicle junkyard, basically a graveyard for cars. And they were stacked up, you know, four or five tall in big piles. And this is right next to my storage unit, which of course looks like army barracks. You know, you've got center block building here, center mm-hmm. block building there. Uh, and then apparently all of those cars, uh, just those shells of cars, those burned up the entire place torched. And it looks like, because we would have been, my storage unit would have been downwind of that. It looks like the fire blew through there and it blew between two of the storage building units in what must have been like a high wind hallway to hell with the fire coming through there. And it got the units across from me, but did not get me. However, it probably torched the back side of my building, which was right up against those cars that were burning. I mean, some of them cascaded over, fell down through the fence or in the storage unit area now. So I can't imagine that I'm that close to it and we didn't sustain some damage, but it looks like my unit largely escaped it. I didn't burn up, but there are a bunch of units that are basically uh, looking through them. I mean, they are, they are destroyed and everything inside them is destroyed. You know, you see the remnants of a motorcycle where the mag wheels, which were made out of magnesium, have melted. I mean, melting magnesium is not an easy thing to do. So, yeah, I mean, this it, it's basically a giant wood-burning stove is what a metal storage unit is in a wildfire. Yeah, it's called a Swedish torch. 
Is that what that's called? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, and if if I learned all about Swedish torches because, uh, for camping, um, because I watched those firebox stove videos, which are really relaxing. Um, and anyway, so you didn't you didn't lose your you're drinking the mustard soda. I see. Um, you didn't lose any stuff that we know about now, but you got to get in there and and see what's going on and. Uh, even if you lost a couple things, I tell you, we, me and you well, are both, nothing compared to what we are lucky because yeah. that could happen in our neighborhood lickety split right down off the mountain and uh, through through the hood. So if um, if people want to donate, you can donate at uh, uh, Boulder County Fund, I believe is what it's called. Boulder County. Wildfire. Yes, the Boulder County Emergency Fund or Emergency Services. And they have a 501c3 uh, that is collecting money and distributing it exclusively. Uh, money and resources exclusively to the survivors of this fire, which ironically, they somebody broke into them just the other day into their tent overnight and stole materials. They did? Yeah, I don't know what the hell that's oh, about. Man. But well, anyway, so yeah, they do that. And the thing that I like about them, because I donated about 500 bucks to it um, the other day. And the thing that I like about them is that they're only keeping 2% of the money donated for admin fees and everything else goes to the survivors as it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, some of these GoFundMes are uh, for individuals are, are doing well too. I don't know how many fun, how, how much percentage they take. It's a little bit probably about like PayPal, but, um, I think I, they actually go on, well, that's a different story, but legally yeah. in Colorado, you can, if you're collecting money for a nonprofit or, or some sort of charitable purpose like this, you can collect or, or you can retain up to 90% of the proceeds and only donate 10%. So these phone calls you get from, you know, the police beneficiary uh, association needs yeah, your money. Yeah, don't ever do that. Yeah. yeah. What those people are, they're, they're basically just telemarketers and you send them $10, they're going to keep nine as a commission and they'll send $1 to a cop. Yeah. Yeah. So don't do that. So be careful on the calls, but Boulder County fund is a really good one. And I, I wanted to do more than just donate money. So uh, me and my dog, easy, I have a Siberian Husky who is just the sweetest guy around. And we went over to, he's a therapy dog. We're a therapy dog team. And we went over to the uh, uh, resource center, the fire resource center for all the victims. Mm-hmm. And um, for about an hour on Saturday. And I got to tell you the sadness there is palpable and these people were coming in covered in soot because they've just been going through the rubble and they're living in hotels or in campers or and and i'd I'd never really had a therapy dog experience where these people just dug in and needed a dog hug um and you know there was a lot of uh insurance trucks out there and um motorhomes and companies who've donated food and pillows and uh, dog beds and whatever, you know, people can donate within reason. And they were coming out with, you know, bags of stuff, but oh my gosh, just, um, it's going to be a long time before we're back to normal around here. But, um, you know, our guest today, we've, we've, uh, we're, we're running this episode again, because it was one of the first interviews that I did when I started the podcast. And back then I was calling it fraud busting fraud, not frog fraud busting. And um, I got to talk to Toby Dore, who used her therapy dog experience a little bit differently than what we did for the fire, because uh, she ended up helping um, prisoners with her therapy dog program and snuck one of them out in a inside dog the therapy dog inside the therapy dog van, not inside <laughs> the dog. But but where it's in, in case you missed it, because it, this is a fascinating um, 
episode of what she did it and i'm not going to tell you how it ended but once they got out of uh out of prison there once they got him out of the gates it didn't go as good as she thought it was gonna so i can't wait to hear this story but i'm still stuck on the boyfriend in prison with the therapy dogs now did, mm. was this her boyfriend before no. they went into prison no so she went in with a dog came out with a dog and a boyfriend liked him so much she decided let's just keep him yeah, like well, dog. she went in with one dog and then it turned into a bunch of dogs, like 20, 30 dogs helping all these prisoners. And uh, mm. yeah, she got a little too cozy with one of them. So, <laughs> um, it, so it is a story that is uh, it's going to be made into a movie because it, it can't not be. It's so amazing. <laughs> so um, so you got to got to listen to this in case you missed it. It's one of our top episodes. Well, let's bring it back. I can't wait to hear it. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, Alex. Toby, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting. You're welcome. Now, You're I, welcome. I, uh, I read your story. I think it was on, um, it might have been on like Apple News or something like that. Yes, and it was The Atlantic did a um, an article on me in October and it was actually named on the cover of the uh, October issue of The Atlantic. Oh man, and I was just fascinated um, by, by you and... Um, I just thought, you know what, I think you can, you have some insight that our, my listeners are really gonna gravitate to. So um, I don't even want to wreck the story by trying to <laughs> even prep people about what's going on, because I was shocked the whole way as I read it. So <laughs> do you want to just jump in and sure. let us know what happened? And I'm sure, sure. I'm going to have a million questions. Okay, that sounds good. So, you know, I was the typical corporate wife. I had a six-figure career and I worked 50, 60 hours a week and I had kids at home and, um, but I got laid off in 2001 when the tech boom busted and I, uh, I lost my job. And, and so I decided, you know, I couldn't just sit around the house. So I took a job at my local veterinary clinic because I'm an animal lover and, then in 2004, I was diagnosed with cancer. And that was just kind of a wake up call to hear your name after the word cancer. Yeah. Even, even though my cancer was, you know, pretty easily treated, I had thyroid cancer, and they removed my thyroid. But it makes you stop and think and I realized that I really hadn't done anything significant in my life. I, you know, I went on vacations, and I went to baseball games that my kids were playing, you know, and I was I enjoyed life, but I, you know, who would care if I was gone? I hadn't made a difference. So I decided I needed to do something that would make a difference. And I decided to start a dog rescue group. And within just a few weeks or actually days of my starting our, my dog rescue group, I was approached by someone from the men's prison that was up the road about eight miles to see if I was interested in starting a prison dog program. Well, the funny thing is that the whole time I was recuperating from my surgery, I was watching cell dogs on Animal Planet. And I, you know, I kept saying to my husband, I want to do a prison dog program. And, and he said, that's just something on TV. They don't really have those. And then here this prison comes to me and asked me if I wanted to start a prison dog program. Oh, and so I was thrilled to death. They asked me on a Monday, 
On Wednesday, I gave a two-hour presentation to the warden and his staff about what my prison dog program would look like, although I had no idea how I was going to build one. And they approved it. And on Friday, I took seven dogs into the prison. And oh so that was the, now, the beginning of Safe Harbor. How many dogs did you have at this point? Uh, when I started the prison dog program, I only had the seven dogs okay. that were rescue dogs that I was trying to find homes for. So I took them into the prison and immediately uh, the warden contacted me and said, this is just changing our prison because, you know, we, as humans, we're social animals and we want to have a connection with somebody. So these men had gone, you know, five, 10, 20, 30 years without ever hugging anyone. And it, you know, it just does something to us. But by having these dogs inside the prison, these inmates could hug the dogs, even if they weren't in the dog program, because I insisted that the dogs live with the inmates in their cells oh. and would walk with them out in the yard when they were out, you know, on regular, you know, outdoor activities. So anyone in the prison could be influenced by the dog's presence, even uh -huh. if they weren't a dog handler. Uh -huh. And I just kept being asked to bring in more and more dogs. And I worked up to having a hundred dog handlers inside <gasps> the prison and, you know, a little over a hundred dogs in the prison at any given time. Wow. Now, did you have to pay for the food for all the dogs? Like how does, well, the way, yeah, I did, but the way it worked was, I would take a dog into the prison and the inmates would, I would have to do their vet care before they went, their vaccinations and have uh -huh. them spayed and neutered. And then inside the prison, the inmates would train them and I wanted them to be housebroken. I wanted them to walk well on a leash. I wanted them to be able to sit and lay down, you know, just be a really good pet for a family. Uh -huh. And then once the dogs were finished with their training, I would take them out to adoption events and adopt the dogs out. So I charged a fee for the dog adoptions. It was $150 a dog, but that helped me pay for their vet care and the food that they needed oh, and any wow. medications they might need. Yeah. No. Uh, and I, I think I told you, cause I was, I was also really attracted to your story because me and my dog are a therapy dog team. Yes. And, uh, you know, we uh -huh. were busier before the uh, virus, but um, I get how you can kind of get to where, you want to do a lot of dog stuff. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, every single dog I took into the program were dogs that were going to be put to sleep. So I was their last chance. And I took dogs from, you know, a thousand miles away. Rescue groups would drive them to me because they were so desperate to save particular dogs. Mm -hmm. There was no end to the dogs. So I had a hundred dogs in the prison. I had another 15 to 30 dogs, either at my house or in other people's homes, waiting for a spot to open in the prison. And in 18 months, I had rescued a thousand dogs. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's some, that's some significance. I mean, you wanted yes. significance. So, okay. What happened next? So I fell in love with one of my dog handlers. Wait, wait, wait. back up, back up, back up, back up. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Cause the article that I read made your situation sound at home, like desperate, like your husband wasn't into you anymore yeah. and right. y'all had been married forever. And so mm -hmm. th there was a series of things that led up to this moment of, 
falling in love with this fella. So yes. we want to talk about that. Just, just yes, so that's right. So I had been married for 28 years and I let myself believe I forced myself to believe that I had a perfect life. I didn't acknowledge that there was anything wrong in my life. And then my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer mm -hmm. in July and I was just devastated. And I, he was such a central figure to our family that I didn't think I could face life without him. And my husband you know, my dad had to have several emergency surgeries and we spent a lot of time at the hospital and my husband never went with me because he always said, you know, there's no sense in both of us missing sleep, you know, it oh. won't matter if I'm there or not. So I felt unsupported. And then one day I was in the prison and I had just come from the hospital. I'd been up all night. My dad had had an emergency surgery and I left the hospital at 530 in the morning and I went to get some breakfast and then I went straight to the prison. And one of my dog handlers said to me, Toby, what is going on with you? You are off today. You know, something big's happening in your life. You know, what's going on? And, and I told him about my dad being at the hospital the night before. And he said, wow, that's really tough. He said, well, thank goodness your husband was there to drive you home because that's pretty tough to go through. And I said, well, he wasn't there, you know. He, what was the sense of both of us missing sleep? And the dog handler said to me, that is the stupidest thing I ever heard of. Why would you be married to someone like that? And I didn't have an answer. And so for the first time I stopped and thought, you know, once you open that door and that thoughts in your head, and I spent the next, you know, 24 hours just thinking, why am I married to him? What answer can I give? I can't, why should, why can't I have an answer? I should have an answer for that. And I, and I didn't. And so it was really eye opening and ended up, you know, that, that dog handler happened to be the one that I ended up falling in love with, but we just talked more and more about my dad and about what I was going through. And I just felt so supported and, and so important to someone which I realized that that's what I'd been craving for years and years. I just never let myself face that. That's what I, that I had a need. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, so he comes in, he recognizes this, right. Mm -hmm. And what happens next? So then, you know, we just started talking more, but uh, maybe two or three weeks after that, I was, accosted in the yard by one of my dog handlers and he was so angry at me and screaming and yelling at me and he had his fists up and I just knew he was going to hit me oh. and I looked all around the prison yard and there were no officers there and I didn't know how to get out of this situation and then I looked up and I saw John Maynard strolling across the yard and I thought oh, he's going to save me this and was the did. guy this was a guy and he walked up and he just diffused the whole situation. He just said, you know, to the guy that was accosting me, he said, just go on back to your room. And then he said, come on, Toby, I'm going to walk you to the gate, you know, so you can get out of here. And, and I, you know, once I got outside the prison, I just fell apart because, you know, I was under so much stress. I was so busy with the dog program and it was so overwhelming and then my dad being sick and then, you know, this thing going through my head that uh, there's a problem in my marriage that I'd never let myself acknowledge before. 
And I called the warden's office at the prison and said, I'm not going back in. I'll still run the prison dog program, but you, somebody else is going to have to do the work inside. I'm not going back in there. Uh-huh. And my contact at the warden's office called me back the next day and said, I've got it all worked out. From now on, when you go into the prison, you call and page John Maynard, and I've freed it up so that he can leave his job to escort you around the prison because we all know that nobody will mess with John Maynard. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. So that just kind of set up a situation where I was spending five hours a day with John Maynard, as this person who I'd already kind of made this connection with, and it just, you know, things just grew, and at... Oh, it all happened really fast, though, too, because that was October 25th or so when I said I wasn't going back in the prison and the Uh escape was February 12th. But by December, I realized I had fallen in love with him. Uh And, And he asked me, if I weren't in prison, would you be with me? And I said, I might, you know, because I had come to the realization in my head that I needed to leave my marriage and so maybe if he wasn't in prison, I would be with him. It was now, now how, how, was there an age difference at this point? What's Yeah, there was an age difference, 21 years. He was oh younger boy. than me. Yeah, he was okay. a lot younger than me. But he, he never seemed, you know, when he was in prison, he never seemed like he was that much younger because I think prison kind of grows you up pretty fast. Mm. So he didn't seem like he was 21 years younger than me. Got it. Got it. Okay. So what happened next? So then when I told him I might be with him, if I wasn't in prison, if he wasn't in prison, I was thinking, you know, if he was released from prison for some reason, but in his mind, then he, that started him thinking about how could he get out of prison? And so he started thinking of ways to escape. And after a couple of weeks, he said, you know, I think I'm going to get out of here. I think I'm going to get, get out. I'm, I'm going to do it this way. And I'd say, that's, that's a dumb way. That's not going to work for this, this, or this reason. And then he, a couple of days later, he'd say, you know, I thought of a different way. I think I'm going to do this. And I was like, that's not going to work either. So to me, it was kind of a game, like a fantasy game of, you know, a prison escape. I mean, nobody escapes from prison, but I kept, you know, shooting down his ideas that weren't good and, and building up the ideas that we thought could work until all of a sudden we had a plan. And up until the day it really happened, I still wasn't positive it was going to happen. I mean, it was kind of a crazy plan, but it all worked out. And so he hid in a dog crate and it just so happened that one of the team leaders at the prison, I had a big wire dog crate in the prison because I'd had a dog who had puppies and we needed a place to kind of keep the puppies corralled. And he came to me and John Maynard happened to be standing there. And he said, I need you to get this wire dog crate out of the prison because it's really a security risk. You know, somebody could take the wire part and make shanks out of it. So I really need you to get that crate out of here. Uh And I said, okay, I can do that. And then John said, how about if I just bring that crate down to the, her van when she comes in to do a dog adoption and we can load it in the van and then she doesn't have to carry this big crate out of the prison. And he said, that'd be a good idea. I'll just let the officers at the guard shack know that one of these adoption days, you're going to, you know, to be expecting the crate to be Uh loaded into the van. Cause they have to keep track of everything that goes in and out. Yes. Yes. So then 
John was working on trying to figure out how he could hide in the crate because it's a wire crate you can see in it. So, yeah. you know, he couldn't just get in there. And they had these pack out boxes that inmates could get a pack out box if they were moving to another cell or moving to another prison and they could fit all their belongings in this pack out box. So he practiced and struggled and lost weight and contorted himself till he finally figured out how he could fit in this box. And so the box was inside of the wire dog crate and John Maynard was in the box. Oh my goodness. Um, and so you knew this, like how did, how did someone not see him getting in the van or I, I guess I have a little gap in what really happened. Um, I wasn't there when he got into the box or into the crate. So I can't answer that, but the, the crate was on, I had a, a metal farm wagon that I used to move 50 pound sacks of dog food around inside uh -huh. the prison. And the crate was on the farm wagon and a couple of inmates rolled the crate down, you know, the wagon down to my van and then just slid the crate into the side of the van. Oh, wow. So do they, do you think they knew what was going on? I don't know if they knew or not. And, and John and I never talked about that. I, I doubt that all of them knew, uh, but it's possible that nobody knew. Uh -huh. It's possible that John put himself in that crate. And then, cause he had told the, uh, his buddies there at the prison that he was supposed to bring this crate down and load it in my van, but he got called into work. So if he had it, everything set up on the wagon, could they just bring the crate, the wagon down and load that crate in the van for him? And so they said, sure. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. So he had, he had some engineering that went into that. Yes, he did. He okay. certainly did. So you drive the van out of the prison. Mm -hmm. What happens next? So we, we stop at my house so that I can take the dogs that are in the van that I was going to take to adoption that day and put them in my barn into dog pens down in my barn. Okay. And then we went to a storage unit and I had bought a truck that I'd paid cash for and it was parked in the storage unit with some supplies in it. And we pulled the truck out of the storage unit and backed the prison dog van into the storage unit and we closed the door and left. Okay. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> what were you feeling at this point? Like, was he hiding was, in the back of the van? Was he sitting in the, was he driving or passenger seat? Like what? He drove when we got the truck out of the storage unit, but I drove the van. And I felt, you know, even the, even when it was happening, I kept thinking, oh, he's probably not in that crate. You know, it's really a dumb idea. He's probably not in that crate. I'll just go to a dog adoption like normal. And when I started to pull the van out of the prison, I said, John, are you in there? And he didn't answer. And I thought, oh, thank goodness. This whole thing was such a you know, crazy idea, but you know, I'm just going to go to a dog adoption like normal. And then as I pulled off the prison ground and onto a city street, then I heard him laughing and I pulled the car over and I, I just was frozen. And I thought, Oh my gosh, what have we done? You know, I can't undo this now. I'm kind of on a road of no return. Uh huh. And you know, John popped out of the box and said, drive, drive. So it was, Oh my goodness. I was, I, you know, I was, there was so much adrenaline. It was such a crazy high because, wow, you know, we'd done this thing and it worked and it shouldn't have worked, but it did. And then, you know, as time went on, it was like, 
oh gosh, what have I done? You know, I'm kind of stuck now. How am I going to get out of this? Uh-huh. So it was, it was really an emotional time. Wow. Okay. So you get the new truck and he's driving the new truck now, yeah, right? It's not new. It's like, you know, 10 or 12 years old. It's an okay. old truck, but yeah, he's driving it. Okay. And where'd y'all go? Like, how did all that, like, well, what was your interaction like? Like, tell me the whole thing. So John, John just talked a million miles a minute and, and, you know, he had always said, oh gosh, red licorice. I just love red licorice. They don't have any red licorice in here. Do you know how long it's been since I had red licorice? And I just love those little chocolate donuts in the package. So I bought those things that I'd heard him talk about. And he just was eating and driving and laughing and just, you know, celebrating because he's like, wow, you know, this is my new life and I'm going to be a good person. And, you know, I'm going to make something happen. And, you know, he just was ecstatic. He had he thought that this was going to be the start of a new life for him. And um, it was kind of surreal because now I kind of saw the younger side of John and that I didn't see when he was in the prison, you know, and, and he just was kind of immature about some of the things that he was thinking. So, um, but it was still exciting. And we, we had rented a cabin in Tennessee and we were going to stay there for a month. And so we headed to Tennessee. Wow. Okay. So then how does the month transpire? Like, is anyone missing you? Like, is, yeah. How does all that come to play? So at the prison, we, I picked John up at 1030. That's what time I went to pick up the dogs because it was right after a count. So in prison, every so often you have a count and the officers count all the inmates and just make sure everybody's accounted for. Uh-huh. And it was Sunday. So we knew that the next count wasn't going to be until three or three 30. So we had five hours to okay. be pretty far gone. And so what happens is when they do a count, you know, each officer is responsible for a housing unit. And then there's officers that are at each place of employment. There's officers at the visiting center. And so each one of those officers just count inmates. They don't really count names. They just count inmates. And then they put their counts together and they're like, oh, we're one short. So they call out and they go, okay, let's do a recount. And so they count again. And then they come back and they're one short. And then they're like, okay, now we need to do a standing count. So a standing count is everybody has to leave wherever they are in the prison and return to their housing unit. And you have to stand with your badge so they can write down names of who they're counting. Uh And when they get through all that, then they realize that John Maynard is missing. Uh And so they knew that John Maynard was one of my dog handlers and they knew that I'd been in there to pick up dogs for an adoption so they called PetSmart where I was supposed to go for the adoption. And PetSmart said, no, she didn't come in here today. So then they started thinking that John Maynard had somehow snuck into the van and kidnapped me. And so they go to my house and they see the dogs that I had picked up from the prison and they knew they were there. And, they, and so I think by the next day, they would made the connection that I had helped with the escape. Oh, wow. Well, now... Do you think you still would have had the option to blame it on him and say you were kidnapped or did that ever cross your mind? Well, John always said that that's what he was going to say. And he did say that after we got arrested, but um, I never did say that because 
for me, it was important to, I felt like if I let myself be a victim, then I would be a victim for the rest of my life. Mm. And I am not a victim. I made choices. I made decisions. I could have said no. Uh And in order for me to move forward and heal and grow, I felt like it was really important that I take responsibility and that I don't be a victim. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so how did this month go in? Well, it was really two weeks. We were got, we, we were caught after two weeks. So, um, you know, there were really good highs and there were some lows during that two weeks. And I now know, uh, because we did get caught in a high speed car chase on a Tennessee interstate at late at night. And we crashed head on into a tree at hundred miles an hour. Now I want to talk about that a little bit, but okay. Now, what do you know now? And then let's back up into that high speed chase. Okay. So we went to Knoxville. So our first plan was we were just going to hide out at this cabin and not go anywhere and uh-huh. wait a month and let things die down. And John, you know, when he went to prison, they didn't have the internet they didn't have smartphones and they didn't have GPS and they didn't have all the police departments connected by computer systems like they did now. And so he thought that there would be no way they could figure out what was going on. There'd be no way to alert other people in other states. They wouldn't know who to alert. And that's really not how it works. So um, he thought if we just laid low for a month and then you know moved on somewhere else that nobody would ever find us unless we did something wrong to get questioned. But I knew I bought that truck and I knew we needed to get it licensed because if we didn't have a license on it, then we would get pulled over and we had a 30 day tag on it. So in order to get it licensed, we needed the title. So I gave them the address of the cabin to send the title to. I used a fake name. I didn't think they'd make a connection, but they did. So they tracked us down to the cabin based on the truck registration. Uh And then you get out to go somewhere. Where are you going? We went to Knoxville, Tennessee to go to the aquarium and the IMAX theater. And then we stopped at a shopping center on the way out of town and went into a bookstore. And when we came out of the bookstore, I mean, this was such a, weird coincidence the marshals that were in charge of finding us were sitting in their car in that parking lot and we walked right in front of them when we left the bookstore oh really so they so they had tailed you they knew that no they didn't know we were in the bookstore they were surprised to see us but they knew we were in Tennessee because they had been to the cabin earlier that day and we weren't there so they knew they knew we were in the general area And when they saw us, then they followed us and we got into a pickup truck. That was what they were looking for. And they radioed ahead and set up this trap on the interstate. And as as we're driving down the interstate, they had closed the entrance ramps on to to the interstate so nobody could get on. And when we came up over this hill and in front of us was just a sea of police cars. I mean, there had to be 50 or 60 police cars, Uh all different colors, all different departments. And they were just filled the highway and they were just waiting for us. And, um, you know, then they had a helicopter on us with this bright light shining. And so, you know, there was no way we were going to get away. And John asked me, what should we do? What do you want to do? And I said, well, 
if they ask you to pull over, I think you should pull over because, you know, that's the law. Yeah. And he said, okay, I'll pull over. And then just then a police car sped up from around behind us and pulled in front of us real quick and slammed on their brakes. Uh-huh. And it made John mad. And he said, those MFers are trying to kill us. I'm not going to stop. And so he floored it and we took off and he drove on the shoulder. He drove across the median and went into the other direction. And this was an interstate that was in a rural area. And there was a huge swath of trees on a wide median, maybe a quarter of a mile wide. You couldn't see the other lanes Uh from the lane you were in. And we drove through those trees and came out on the other side and, um, and then we lo- he lost control of the truck uh-huh. and we slammed into a tree at a hundred miles an hour. Oh man, you're lucky you weren't, I mean, were they shooting at you or just chasing? No, you? they didn't shoot. They didn't shoot. Um, but I think it wouldn't have taken much for them to want to shoot. So yeah. it was a really tense, crazy situation. Cause and- I've seen that video of that chase and it's on your site that people, yes, can, people can see it and it is no joke. <laughs> that's right yeah it was pretty crazy wow so crazy. what were you thinking through all this were you, i mean were you thinking huh i wonder if anybody misses me or like uh... i i truly believed that nobody would even know i was gone because i felt like i was so invisible to everyone in my world oh my goodness wow okay and so um van crashes what what happens then so they pull me out of the van and I had the wind knocked out of me, but I'm not hurt. And, you know, I've been praying that I just, you know, just please let me die in this crash because oh. I don't want to have to face this, whatever's coming. It's not going to be good. And I'd rather just be dead. And so when we hit the tree and I really wasn't hurt, I was disappointed because oh. you know, I, I wanted to be dead. And so they pulled me out of the van and took me to the, you know, arrested me and, Finally took me to a hospital, although they weren't going to, but I said, you know, I really think I should go to a hospital. And so we went to the hospital and they put me in a little jail in Tennessee. And then two days later, they had someone from Kansas came and picked me up and took me back to go to court in Kansas. Wow. Okay. So uh, how did court go? Like, I mean, have, at, cause at this point you and John are separated. Right. Right. Yeah, I didn't see him again um, for a long time, but then that's a different story. So um, prison, jail, I was in jail. Jail and prison are totally different. Jail, I was destroyed by being in jail. I didn't know how to be in jail, you know, and John always told me, oh, if we get caught, Toby, they're just going to give you a slap on the wrist. They're not going to put you in jail. You know, they don't put people like you in jail. Well, they did. And I wasn't prepared. And I remember, you know, my attorney asked for a two-week continuance, and I had a meltdown in court and said, I cannot be in this jail for two weeks. What are you thinking? You know, well, I was there for a lot longer. So, you know, it was just kind of a big wake-up call. And the the beautiful thing about it is I ended up getting sentenced to 27 months in uh-huh. prison. And there was this pivot point when I realized for the first time in my life, I had no responsibilities. I had no deadlines. I had no appointments. I didn't have to cook for anybody. I didn't have to take anybody anywhere. I didn't have to be somewhere. I just had this gift of time. 
which I had never had in my life. And I decided I could use that time to go back through my whole life and start picking it apart and figure out where the breaks were, what part of me was broken and what did I need to fix and to start to envision a life that I wanted to lead when I got out of prison. Huh? So what, do you want to share any insights? Um, like maybe one or two that you had where you're like, Oh boy, didn't know I was doing that. Right. Well, prison, prison was tough. It's not easy. It's not easy. And, um, but it's not, I mean, it's something you can do if you have to do it. And I realized that so many of the women that I met in prison were broken too. I mean, almost all of them, they had things in their lives that they needed to resolve. And I made some of the closest friendships I've ever had with those women in prison because there's no pretense in there. You know, everybody's cut down to their lowest and it just is a good place to start building a foundation and move up. Oh, wow. Now, um, so did you do all 27 months? Did you get out early? How did all that? Oh, I did all 27 months. Uh Uh-huh. And then what was life like on the other side? What, did you go back to your husband and your home? My husband divorced me the day before I went to prison. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. We never, we never really talked. I called him from jail and I wrote him letters from jail, but he never answered me or took my calls. And then Um, I did get out on bond for a little bit of time after I pled guilty before I had to report to prison and he came to visit me one time and he, you know, told me I'd ruined his life and I'd ruined everybody's lives and, and, you know, and so he divorced me. He had an emergency divorce and we got divorced in like two weeks. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so you cut free, but it wasn't good to rush it like that because then I got out of prison and I, I, I lost everything, you know, I yeah. had to start over with nothing. And I didn't, I thought I could do that just fine because I'd never had a trouble getting a job. I'd never had uh-huh. trouble supporting myself, but, but it didn't work out that way because, you know, people don't want to hire felons. Wow. So uh, what have you been doing? Well, how, how long has it been since you've been? Out? Well, this February will be 15 years oh, that okay. I got of the escape. So I've been out of prison for 12 years. Oh, wow. And then what, uh, what have you been doing? Tell us, tell us about that. So when I got out of prison, I, I had a lot of media coverage for my story. And I actually had a, a guy I went to high school with was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. And he did a story about me while I was still in prison. And it was on the front cover. And oh. so someone that read that article offered me a job in Boston for when I got out of prison because he wanted me to build a website for him. And I went to Boston and I met my future husband there. Oh, okay. Very long. I was only there five months, but when I came back to Kansas city, Chris came with me and we shared a house. We rented a house. It was just a good friendship. It wasn't anything romantic. We rented a two bedroom house. And then over a year's time, our relationship started to change a little bit and, and we got married. Oh, wow. So, so you got a new husband. Yes. And he's awesome. I mean, he is my biggest uh, supporter and my biggest fan and my soulmate. And he's the keel to my ship. So my ship tends to fall this way or fall this way. And 
and he's the keel that keeps me on center. So, oh my goodness! Well, so that's it, that's sort of a happy ending. But it, how it is a happy ending? Yeah. Um, so, you know, having John Maynard escape from prison was a stupid thing, and it was a desperate act of a desperate woman at a desperate time in her life. And I wouldn't do it today. Obviously, I'm not the same person, but. Uh, in a strange way, I'm grateful for everything that happened because if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't be who I am today. And I feel like at this point, my goal is to make a difference in the lives of women out there, to bring them hope, to show them that they have a path to redemption, that they can heal and rebuild their lives from whatever their trauma they've had. And I think that's an important message. And I think you know, this is the thing I was looking for when I had cancer and decided I needed to do something to change the world. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. Wow. So then let's, I got two, two questions for you. Um, do you have any regrets? Like what, how does that stack up for you? Well, regrets is an odd thing. And everybody asks me if I've had regrets. And to me, regrets is just a waste of time because there is absolutely no way you can change the past. Now, would I do the same thing today? No way. But I'm not the same person I was then. So I don't have any regrets because there's nothing you can do with a regret except to feel bad. Right. And I refuse to do that. So I choose to look forward and see what I can do in the future to make a difference in the world. Wow. So let's, let's, let's bring this back to fraud now. Because I think a lot of people are really good at at social engineering, which is exactly, I think, the boat that you fell into, which is essentially high stakes illegal persuasion, I think is, is what it is. Would you consider yourself like taken advantage of or were you equally responsible in getting to the point when you, where you drove the van out or how, how do you stack that up? And what are some of the things that, that people who are listening can really start to do like a self-assessment and see like if they're vulnerable to something like this themselves. Like, what do you think about those things? Yeah. So I think that the biggest fraud in my life was the fraud I committed against myself to not let myself even acknowledge how I really felt and to um, put a voice to the lack of a relationship that I had with my husband and the lack of fulfillment that I had in my life and the lack of visibility to anyone that was important to me. I, I felt like I was an invisible person and I allowed that to happen. So to anyone who asked, I would give them this perfect vision of my life. And I think so many of us do that. We, we don't bring up the things that are wrong in our lives. We don't allow ourselves to give a voice to them and acknowledge them. I think that was the biggest fraud. Now, I do know when you're in a relationship with anybody, you could be, you could, as a mother, you know what you can say to this particular son to influence him in this way. And you can't say that to this son because he would react in a total different way. So you have to approach him in this way to have him get his homework done. Right. And did John Maynard do that to me when we were planning the escape? Probably. And I probably did it to him. I think all of us, you know, know what buttons to push and what ways to sway someone towards our way of thinking. 
Uh, did he do it maliciously? I don't think so. I don't think so. I do think he loved me. And I do, I was vulnerable though. I was very vulnerable. And, and another one of the risks that weren't acknowledged was I could go into that prison anytime, night or day, and I could go anywhere in the prison. I could go into the inmate cells alone. Oh. I could go into places that visitors never go. That was a mistake too, uh, that unlimited access, because I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for the vulnerability of being in that situation. Wow. So then have you talked to John or I have. So I didn't know anything about John, where he went or what was going on in his life. And about mm, three or four years after I'd been out of prison, I got a call from a reporter and he said, I've been talking to John Maynard and he'd like to talk to you. Would be okay if you gave him my phone. I gave him your phone number. So I talked to my husband and Chris said, sure, tell him to call. We'll talk to him. He needs a friend. So John called and Chris and I both talked to him and we wrote to him for a year or two and talked on the phone every now and then. And we sent him a Christmas basket, you know, at Christmas. And, um, and then my husband is from Maine and we were going back to Maine to visit and John at that time was in a prison in New Hampshire. They transferred him to a prison in New Hampshire. And he said, Toby, New Hampshire is right next to Maine. You should stop and visit. I said, they're not going to let us visit you. They're crazy. Yeah, it didn't he, go so good that last time, did it? <laughs> no, it didn't. And so he said, I'll just send you the visiting forms. All you need to do is just fill them out. Let's just see what they say. And so we filled them out, Chris and I both. And we got back a, approved for a visit. Wow. And I kept thinking what are they doing? They're crazy. But anyway, we stopped and visited John. We had a two hour visit with him and it was a really good um, experience because I think, you know, then we could, I could finally put closure on that chapter. Wow. So what's, what happened to your dog program? It, it kept going. So they found some officers in the prison to keep it running and it still is running. I don't think it's as big as it used to be, but it continued on. And I was really proud, happy about that because I was worried that they would just cancel it and close it, but they didn't. They found a way to keep it going. Wow. So um, back to checking in on, on your own self, like for people listening, is it, mm -hmm. is it just not being mostly just checking in and see if you're being honest with your relationships that you have right now, or is there some, is there another big piece that people can look at that says, wait a minute, warning, warning, you're vulnerable, mm -hmm. vulnerable here. Yeah. So I found that it's so much easier to write things down. You will write things that you would never say. So I think journaling was a, an awesome tool for me while I was in prison. And, you know, if you just take time every day to write about things that, um, you never would have thought you'd said out loud and things start to come out. In fact, I've created a planner for women to kind of help them do just that. And it's also, I think, having a close friend. I didn't have any friends in my life. I just, you know, had, had my husband. So I was kind of isolated. So I think, you know, don't isolate yourself. If you don't have people you talk to, if you don't have a, a an activity that you do, you know, with different people, then, then maybe you should look at your life and see if you're, you're trapped in some way. Got it. Oh, wow. Okay. So 
how are you helping people now? How can people get a hold of you? Because because you're doing a lot of good work like with these lessons. Tell us about that. Yes. So I've created a series of workbooks and they're called the Unleashed series. So the title of my memoir is Unleashed and it's not published yet, but hopefully soon. And in the workbooks, they're, they're each 12 week workbooks and they have lessons that really help you dig deep and, and find those things in your life that are broken that you've not been willing to admit or even been honest with yourself about. And the workbooks are available on my website, which is tobydor.com, D-O-R-R, one O two R's. And I've started, uh, you know, doing some public speaking to women's groups who want to get involved and help other women. And I have got my workbooks in some halfway houses and some prisons, and I'm going to just continue to grow that program. Oh, I love it. And so, and you're doing virtual presentations as well, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Excellent. Yeah. So and people don't have to wait for conferences to come back. That's exactly right. And I also have a program on my website where um, women can sponsor other women. So if there's a woman in prison who can't afford to buy a book, that someone else can buy books for them. So we have a sponsorship program in there. Well. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Well, Toby, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting. And your website, just so everybody knows, is tobydoor.com, right? Right. That's it. Yeah. And so make sure y'all look her up, uh, go there and watch these videos, if nothing else from the car chase, because it's really, <laughs> it's really something. It's <laughs> crazy. It was a pretty crazy ride. It, so. I guess. But you know what? I'm glad that you're out there using this information, uh, like for the better to make the world uh, yeah. a, a better place. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Tracy. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.